Amen, amen. You can all have a seat. I did a... (laughs) I did a wedding once, and I forgot that you can all have a seat part. <laughs> and they all stood through the entire thing. <laughs> Anyways, it's, um, I don't know about y'all, but it's been, it's been good to go through Ecclesiastes. Um, it's been good to hear our pastor uh, preach through that book. Um, I'm, I'm a little bit more drawn towards the... Um, the kind of uh, somewhat darker things in life and, and, and where the hope comes in and, and shines light in those, those dark areas. So Ecclesiastes, is, it's my jam. It's, I, I love it. I love it. Um, but I know for, for many and for, you know, it's, it can be somewhat, you know, depressive. Um, it can be somewhat, uh, as someone described it as, as, as salty, right? <laughs> And so this morning, uh, as uh, you know, a bit of, of kind of an interlude, I wanted to, to give us something a little bit more, uh, more hopeful, something a little bit more uh, you know, uplifting and encouraging. And so I thought, you know what? Demon possession. Let's, <laughs> let's do a passage on that. I don't, I don't exactly understand how that happened. Um, but we are, in all, in all earnest, we are going to be looking at uh, the, the book of John, chapter 9, verses 14, or sorry, Mark, I, I don't know why I'm doing that, Mark, chapter 9, verses 14 through uh, 29, and uh, we'll, be, we'll be looking at that, so go ahead and, and uh, turn there, and, and, and a part of that really is because I have, uh, I've always appreciated and, and am drawn towards the Gospels and, and seeing how Jesus interacts with people, seeing how Jesus, Jesus uh, talks to him and, and what he says and what he does and, and the amazing things that, that happen around uh, what Jesus is doing. My kids and I, we got in a conversation not too long ago about uh, you know, how you talk to people about your faith and about Christ and, and what do you do when, when they don't they don't believe and they don't see, you know, factual data and this and that, I said, always take them back to Jesus. Nobody really denies that Jesus wasn't here. And you always, you can come back to Jesus and you can ask the question, you know, what about Jesus? What about what he did and, and, and what, he's, what he's about? So that's kind of what we're looking today is we're looking at Jesus, some things in his life and some things that he did and, and, and hoping Mark can speak to us and encourage us and, and being able to live a life worthy of what Jesus has called us to do. So let's go ahead and get into Mark chapter, chapter 9, as I said, and we're going to start there with verse 14. And they came to the disciples and they saw a great crowd around them and the scribes arguing with them. Now, it might be helpful to have some context here as to who they is. And so just before this passage, Mark wrote about the transfiguration. And and this is where uh, Peter and James and John, they were up on a high mountain and uh, they were with Jesus there and they were away from the other nine disciples. And on this mountain, they experienced probably one of the most uh, amazing and and awe-inspiring moments in their life up to that point Jesus began to glow. His clothes were emanating a white light. And, and it's, it's 
it has to be more than, than just the absorption and, and re-emission of photons because the, the emanating light that was coming off of his clothes was, was shining brighter than what the sun was putting out at that moment. And yet somehow, uh, you know, miraculously without, you know, the release of, of energy and heat that would be associated with it. But more than that, too, there was these two figures that just appeared before them. And, and somehow, somehow Peter recognized who they were. Somehow he knew it was Moses and Elijah. And it's, it's not like, you know, you know, these dudes have been dead for a long time, right, at this point. And, and it's not like he has, you know, uh, some picture of Elijah on the wall or, you know, he was, you know, just looking at a YouTube video of when Moses was bringing the Israelites out of, out of Egypt. He didn't have none of that. But somehow in this moment when heaven was breaking through earth, Peter was able to know who they were. Amazing, absolutely amazing. And so this cloud then too began to to overshadow them. And out of a cloud, they heard the voice, this is my son, listen to him. And then just like that, it's all gone. And Jesus is like, okay, let's go. I start heading down the mountain. And, and he looks over into him and is like, hey, uh, fellas, you know, that, all that, let's, let's just keep that between us, okay? Don't, don't tell anybody, not yet at least. And so they're coming down the mountain, and as they're, they're approaching the other disciples, the other nine that are down there, then they're maybe still a little bit off yet, and they, they hear some, some shouting, some yelling maybe. There's, there's a bit of a commotion, and there's a, there's a crowd that's gathering around them, and, and they can see that the scribes are there and that they're arguing with them. I love Mark's juxtaposition of these incidents and how he uses this one little detail of an argument to capture the feel of the situation. Peter, James, and John, they're, they're coming down from, from a figurative and literal mountaintop experience and they get met immediately with reality. They get confronted immediately with reality, an argument with the teachers of the law. It's like they've, They've been spending time at, 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 a, at a conference where the worship's been tight and the, and, the, and the teaching and the preaching has just been at 100 and they get back home and it's laundry and dishes. They get to work and it's just the, the day-to-day grind of it. It's like leaving church on Sunday morning and you've, you've felt refreshed and, and, and connected and you get in the car and immediately you're met with complaints of I'm hungry or he won't stop looking at me. <laughs> this coming down off the mountain is it's, it's Mark setting the scene for Jesus keeping us grounded. In fact, you can write that down for our first point this morning. Jesus keeps us grounded. Some of you out there, you know, you're, you're faithfully and, and diligently writing down that point and you're being compliant on the outside. Thank you for that. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. Uh, but on the inside, you're thinking, well, wasn't it really the, the scribes then, their argument that was grounding their expectations in this? Well, take a look at what happens next here in verse 15. We read immediately all the crowd when they saw him were greatly amazed and they ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? 
You see, Jesus is keen in this moment to recognize and, and, and looks to, to ground or anchor not only Peter, James, and John, but the others. And so he asks, what are you arguing about with them? This question, it, it, it cut through all the clutter. It, it cut through all the expectations in this situation. But who's he talking to? He doesn't really address who the question is for, and, and it's kind of ambiguous as to, as to who he's meaning. So who is you and, and who is them? And we saw in verse 14 that there's, you know, there's these kind of these three groups. There's the nine disciples, there's the crowd that gathered around them, and there's the scribes. And to answer this question, I think Mark gives us another interesting and, and vivid detail as to what they did when they saw Jesus. He wrote that they were greatly amazed. This greatly amazed, it's a word that can mean overwhelmed with all or overwhelmed with fear. Now, in, in this context, it would seem since they were running towards Jesus that it would be more the effect of fear, or sorry, more the effect of awe. But the word's also used to in, describe encounters with divine manifestations and is often translated afraid. There's a, a sense of losing all rational thought and response. And so when they saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with a desire to be near him, and they just took off running. It's like Jesus is some sort of rock star here. That There's people that are screaming, there's some that are fainting, and everybody's pressing in to get closer to him. And as you read through the Gospels, you'll see that this really isn't an uncommon occurrence. In fact, it happens again in our passage later on. When people see Jesus, they, they just want to be near him. They, they want to be where the action is. They want to be present and involved and a, and a part of what's happening. And what better place to be than to be where God is, yeah? It's to quote Henry Blackaby, to see where God is working and join him. Their desire to be with Jesus, it, it isn't wrong. Our desire to be with Jesus isn't wrong. To, to, be, a part of, to be a part of a small group that, that earnestly prays for one another, to serve together in, in, in Harvest Kids or hospitality, to, to be a part, to, to have a, a late night deacon meeting, that is doing tours of our facility here to run thoughts by one another and invite God's wisdom in to intervene through collective ideation. Sometimes we do. We just, we want to go where everybody knows our name. And what better place to go than where God knows our name? So this crowd here, this crowd is chasing Jesus. And we know at least that they were close enough to hear Jesus ask him this question, and as far as the argument goes, maybe, maybe they joined in on the side of the disciples or maybe they came to the aid of the scribes. Chances are there was probably a mixed bag of both reactions uh, with them. And yet Mark specifically tells us that the, the scribes were arguing with the disciples. And so he must be asking one of these two groups now, given the apparent hostility of the scribes who are often lumped in with the Pharisees, it seems odd for them to, to be chasing after Jesus in some fanatical sort of fashion. Therefore, it, it would make more sense that Jesus is asking his disciples here, you know, 
what were you arguing about this with the scribes? But then you got to think too, where's their answer? After Jesus' question, Mark tells us that someone from the crowd answered. Why were the disciples quiet? We'll see as we go on in this whole circumstance that it revolves around a son who's afflicted by an unclean spirit. And this man who spoke up stated that, that Jesus' son, sorry, that spoke up to Jesus that his disciples, they couldn't cast out the spirit. And that even though Jesus empowered and commissioned the disciples to do that very thing, if we were to turn back a few pages, we could read in Mark 6, 7, and it, it, we can put it up here on the screen uh, that maybe, maybe I didn't do that one. <laughs> but we could read a few pages, turn back a few pages, Mark 6, 7, where Jesus called the 12 and he began to send them out two by two and he gave them authority over unclean spirits. This is something that they should have been able to do. This is something that they should have done. But when his father asked his son to be cured, the disciples offered silence. Silence from God. Silence for help. Silence in the place of hope. And when their teacher, their mentor, their Lord, asked them about what was going on, there was no response. Only silence. Silence and shame. Silence and anger. Silence and doubt. Silence and confusion. The silence of failure. We can feel that at times too, can we not? When it seems things should have turned out differently. A prodigal child that should have followed the path laid before them. We feel defeated in failure through that, do we not? Or when we muster up enough courage to talk to someone about Jesus and they respond with a dismissive, well, that's good for you. We can feel a sense of letting Jesus down. So for those of us who like the comfort and the security in life and to stay in those moments, Jesus keeps us grounded by reminding us that conflict is inevitable. For those of us who, who seek after being where the party is, Jesus keeps us grounded by pressing us to go deeper in our interactions. And for those who are dedicated to action and mission, Jesus keeps us grounded by reminding us sometimes it takes more than what we have available. And for those of us who need and thrive on order and following laws like the scribes, Jesus hasn't forgot about you either. It might make more sense that the scribes did not follow the crowd in this run towards Jesus, but Mark stated all the crowd. And just as the disciples were silent and present, so were the scribes silent and present. And so Jesus keeps those of us who are trying to keep things right, grounded by showing sometimes we learn more through experiences than we do a rule book. So it's not only through the, the mountaintop experience that we learn of Jesus grounding us, but it's also in the spiral of self-doubt and the abatement of delusions concerning our own capabilities. In these moments, Jesus' grounding actually lifts us up. John Guerra came out with a new song called Tightrope, and this one 
we should have a slide for. But he came out with a new song called Tightrope, and this is what he sings. Sometimes I feel like I'm walking a tightrope from heaven to earth. Walk steady, walk straight, don't grumble, don't be late. Get better or you're going to get hurt. So I try to walk balanced and healthy. I say I'm fine, wobbles and all, but some things I can't fake. It's a curse I can't break. No, the tightrope's no match for the fall. No, the tightrope's no match for the fall. Guerrera sings to teach me to fall in your direction, pointing us towards looking at Jesus in these failures. He goes on, you danced on the tightrope like nothing, made all of the walkers look stiff. You forgave the sinner and condemned the winner. So they took that rope and they hung you with it. But on the third day, something happened. You rose up and you took that, you rose up and you looked for your friends. You told them that you forgave them and that you'd always be with them and that falling is how you ascend. You said falling is how you ascend. Teach me to fall in your direction. And when I can't go on, teach me to climb. When I can't get up, teach me to rise. And when I fall, teach me to fly. It's in these moments when we feel the utter failure of our efforts that Jesus becomes our desperate hope. You can write that down as our our second point this morning. Jesus is our desperate hope. Looking back to our text in verse 17, we read, and someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute, and whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth, and he becomes rigid. So he asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. Now, I want to point out a few things that are unique to Mark's writing and, and discuss the description here, which it seems to be someone who's living with epileptic seizures and, and as a result could be nonverbal. In our Western naturalistic culture, this, this seems fitting as, as someone with these life challenges and, and is probably in need of communal support. But Mark doesn't equate the two. In his writing, he never communicates Jesus to have healed people when dealing with unclean spirits, but he does communicate Jesus' healing when dealing with mental and physical challenges. Therefore, we have to let this reality of Mark's process and perception guide our own understanding of the Spirit's inspiration. We need to accept that this circumstance, it lies outside of the hubris of our own culture's naturalistic framework, And we must not equate this to some antiquated view of mental disorders. And we certainly should not think to mean the Bible equates all mental disorders to demonic efforts. All right, now that I've offered that disclaimer, um, let's let's look back at the Father and and Jesus' response. So in verse 19, we read that, that Jesus answered, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. You know, I, I love me a happy, smiling Jesus much more than a, a somber, uh, emotionally stoic Jesus. But can you feel 
his frustration in this moment. Full of compassion, yes. Full of love, yes. And, and full of a desire to see people grow and improve and, and learn to love God and his people more. But here, the, the failure of the disciples to cast out the spirit, the, the failure of the father's doubt. Notice he doesn't have his son with him anymore. And the failure of the crowd and the scribes to truly follow Jesus and not just chase after him, it all had to be trying his patience as well. And he says that they're all without faith, a generation that is unreliable and untrusting. But despite their failures, Jesus still says, bring the boy to me. And then they all witness firsthand what happens to the boy. Look at verse 20. And they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, it saw Jesus, that is, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it's often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything... If someone could do something, have compassion on us and help us. Do you feel the weight of the father's failure in all this? For years, he's been unable to fully protect his child while simultaneously unable to let his kid go about life and play like all the other children. Yet here is his child, trauma, burn scars and all, and for probably most of his time as a father, he has been asking for someone to do something. And here, when he, when he has the chance to, to bring his child to Jesus and finally for his, his child to be set free from this, Jesus asks him if he can. Look at verse 23, where Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes if he can believe. But he knows, he knows in his heart that he's failing at this too. And so he cries out, help my unbelief. Jesus is our desperate hope. When we come face to face with our faithlessness, Jesus is our desperate hope. When that dirty temptation is paraded in front of us again, in order for us to fail again in resisting it, Jesus is our desperate hope. When injustice and greed align against us, Jesus is our desperate hope. When the enemy is seeking to destroy us, Jesus is our desperate hope. And when you get a check in the mail for $1,500, that's actually a predatory loan, Jesus is our desperate hope. There was a time in my family's life when a $1,500 check was a month's pay. And when you're a single income family making $9 an hour, every bill hurts. Every month there's a decision on who isn't getting paid 
and you need to go to the, the pantry be, to get food because we literally had no money to buy it. Getting a $1,500 check in the mail, it feels like provision. But it's a trap from the enemy looking to bring about more bondage and more brokenness. I haven't seen one of these in years. I've gotten two this week. <laughs> the first one got cut up and thrown in the trash. The second one, I'm like, that's going to be sermon material. <laughs> Jesus is our desperate hope. But, you know, I, I feel I do need to say a few things to, to counteract some unhealthy views regarding Jesus' response. All things are possible for one who believes. Mark wrote three times the saying, all things are possible. Once here in chapter 9, again in chapter 10, when Jesus told his disciples that with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. And lastly, in chapter 14, when Jesus was praying for the cup of suffering, the way of the cross to be removed from him, because God can do all things, because all things are possible for God, but he followed up that prayer with submission to God regardless of the outcome of that prayer. Jesus is not teaching that if we believe hard enough, that if our faith is strong enough, we'll get what we ask for as long as we have the right kind of faith. The reason is, and, and we haven't got there yet, so this is a bit of a spoiler alert in our, our story this morning, and I'm sorry for that. But Jesus does what the Father asks him to do. He casts out the unclean spirit. But look at the Father's desperate prayer. I believe, help my unbelief. That doesn't sound like strong faith, does it? See, with these three instances of Jesus saying all things are possible in, with, through God, and specifically, given the conditional submission to the Father's will, any answers to prayer of faith are not a result of our performance, but a result of God's purpose. Let me say that again. Any answers to prayers of faith are not a result of our performance, but a result of God's purpose. But see, on the flip side, this doesn't give us clearance to abdicate our responsibility to live by faith either. Jesus' chastisement in calling them a faithless generation, it, it applies to the Father, it applies to the crowd, the scribes, and the disciples. And I can confidently tell you that if the Father had not brought his Son to Jesus, his Son would have died still having been affected by the Spirit. God does many things for us, many things that we are unable and unwilling to do, but he also invites us into a covenantal relationship where we both exercise faithfulness towards the other. This, this isn't to mean that God helps those who help themselves. That, that statement, that philosophy is trash, but it does mean that our faith, as James would put it, works it does. It has a visible and definable substance to it. Even if that substance is, is a desperate hope to Jesus to help our skepticism, to remove our untrusting heart, to dissolve our faithlessness by the power of his purpose. I'm going to preach here in a minute. 
Where are we at in our story? All right, verse 25, take a look. And when Jesus saw the crowd, he came running together. He rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. So go ahead and write this down as our our third point this morning. And then um, today we're going to, we're going to, walk through together how I got there. So Jesus gives us success over the enemy. Jesus gives us success over the enemy. The enemy. Now, I said we're going to walk through this together, and, and I meant it. Um, I want you to read verse 25 a few times over, and then I'm going to ask some questions. And they won't be rhetorical questions, so if you feel have the answer, go ahead and, and speak out. But um, yeah, go ahead and read verse 25 there a few times. All right, so this, this first question, it's key. Why did Jesus command the Spirit to come out? Yes, you in the bag. Sorry. <laughs> right out the gate. Right out the gate. Because there was a crowd. You see, the black text in the Bible, it's not just filler to get to more red letters. It means something. Mark connects the timing of the crowds running together to Jesus rebuking the Spirit. Okay, now these, these, next, uh, these next couple questions, really, you might have to look a little outside of verse 25 to get the answer. But, but did the Spirit leave because of Jesus' authority? You got a 50-50 on this one. <laughs> now, I'm with you, and I want to answer that in, 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 an, in affirmation because Jesus, because I believe Jesus is God. I believe Jesus has authority, and, and Jesus exercises that authority, and he is able to command the winds and the wave, and he has cast out other unclean spirits because of his authority. But here, I already told you about in Mark uh, six, right? Where Jesus gave his, his disciples authority. He shared the authority that he has with his disciples. And, and because they had that authority, they should be able to cast out the unclean spirit as well. But see, their failure, it, it didn't come in, in how they were gifted. Their failure come in the use of their gifts. And so, the last question here will kind of also shed light on, on that second one is what caused the spirit to leave according to Jesus? Prayer. Prayer did. That's right. And so now that we've firmly established by answering those three questions that the verbal rebuke of the spirit was because the presence of the crowd let me ask this, this next question, and this one is going to be a, a little less rhetorical, so let's, let's keep it down out there. 
Why did the presence of the crowd matter? Why did they matter? You see, Mark has already shared stories of where Jesus removed unclean spirits. He's already shared how Jesus delegated authority to others to do the same. Mark already shared stories of how Jesus healed those who could not hear and speak. And moreover, in Matthew's writing, uh, people back then, they understood what an epileptic condition was. For, and for proof of that, you can see Matthew 4.24. And in this, it separates oppression by demons and those who having seizures as two different things Jesus was dealing with. So then I think it's reasonable to assume that Mark is not just sharing another instance, but is looking to communicate something very specific with this one. Namely, that the personal triumphs of Christ in our lives are not dependent upon our performance, but upon his purpose. Again, let me say that again. The personal triumphs of Christ in our lives are not dependent upon performance, but upon his purpose. The passage of this text is completely centered around the public display of Jesus' power over sinister and destructive forces. It begins with an argument with the scribes and the disciples to which Jesus was very interested in finding out what that argument was about. And when we learn it has to do with a diminishing perspective of his power through public debate, Jesus indicts the people as faithless. And then here, when Jesus has a chance to reclaim his fame in the presence of another crowd gathering, he displays triumph over evil. And not in some self-seeking manner, but so that people will believe, so that people will have faith. Marcus sandwiched the, the transfiguration in this encounter between two statements of Jesus made to his disciples about going to the cross. Much of what Jesus did was giving people opportunities to trust and believe in him so that when the cross and the resurrection happened, they would know without a shadow of a doubt that he is God. Now we can, we can read through the gospels and we can learn from Jesus what it means to love our neighbor, what it means to care for the poor, what it means to be a good steward with our finances. And, and those are all good things. Those are all things that we should learn and we should do. And we can learn what it means to live holy lives and maintain postures of righteousness. But the kingdom of God is more than a pathway of morality. The gospel is so much bigger than being a good person. Let's pretend you were able to obtain perfection in morality. And let's not kid ourselves, pretending it would definitely be. But let's say that you were able to be good enough to earn your way into heaven. That you were so generous and kind that you not only took care of your own responsibilities, but you provided for the poor. You aided those who were destitute. You came along to the side of those who suffer injustice and are marginalized, and you lived a virtuous and honest life. For all your good, you have still yet to help the one who is unwilling or unable to do any of those things. Your personal morality, as good as it is, does nothing to correct the brokenness of humanity and is ultimately only a positive mark on your life alone. 
You may have successfully proved yourself as a good person, but your goodness cannot and will not save another. Sin, suffering, and injustice remain in the world, and no amount of effort you put forth will do anything to remove it. For this, all your efforts are chasing the wind. And in truth, are only a means by which you aim to convince yourself that you're okay. But in that aim, in that justification, you leave another on his path destined for hell, unhindered and speeding towards destruction. No, the ultimate and true goodness in this world is to offer an escape from humanity's brokenness. And this offer is only available through Jesus Christ. And this is the purpose of Jesus' power over evil. The Apostle Paul seeks to get us to have the same viewpoint when he wrote to the Ephesians that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. The single most pressing reality in our world is the fight against evil. And victory in this fight, it only happens through Jesus Christ. Now this battle, it may not manifest itself in our circumstances the way it does here in our text, but make no mistake about it, there are dark forces that seek to dishearten, derail, and destroy your life, all in an effort to say that God has no power here. But when we continually submit to the loving will of the Father at every turn, we prove God's presence and power remains. I, uh, I normally don't like telling stories where I might be perceived as having it all together um, because I, <laughs> I know you're shocked, right? <laughs> but I, uh, I, like the apostle, can claim that I have not yet obtained perfection, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. But if you would, this one time afford me uh, this story because I remember how it made me feel to be victorious when there was a clear effort to do damage to me. Shortly after I got promoted uh, to a manager, I, I got in a car accident while driving to a client's location. It had begun to uh, rain a little bit, and uh, there was a car in front of me that applied its brakes, and um, I was assuming that it had to do with uh, the, the accident that had already taken place with the officer on scene, and, and so I began to slow down and uh, kind of looked around, assessed the situation, and I'm looking back at the car, and I'm realizing that they're not slowing down. They are indeed going ahead and stopping in the middle of the road for no reason. And it's one of those moments where, <laughs> where everything goes into slow motion, and, and, and you, but you still can't think fast enough or move fast enough or do anything different other than just let it happen. And so I've got my, my foot pressed on my brake as hard as I can, and the analog brakes have kicked on in the car and are not allowing the car to come to a stop. 
and, and I'm, I'm looking and I can see the driver's face in their mirror as they're looking out the side of their car and there's a person standing on the sidewalk who's talking to the driver and there's, they're having a conversation in the road. And I'm, I'm moving towards this car and the only thing that's going in my mind is move, 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 move. Oh! So after I bumped into the car, we, we pulled off and, and I walked over to the police officer who was filling out the report for the accident that had just happened. And I said, uh, it looks like you got another one to do. But I walked back into my car and, and when he was finished, he came over, he talked to that driver, he talked to me and uh, I had to explain to him what was going on and what happened. And he said, well, I, I, I'm required to give you a ticket because you're technically the one that struck the other vehicle. But he said, I'm not going to press this. So if you, you go and you get this dropped, it'll, you know, it'll be fine. Okay. Moved on. Went about my day. Called my employer, told him about the, about the incident since I was in a company vehicle. Went on to the client's location and dealt with that and, and went about it. Now, a few days later or something, I'm not exactly sure on the time, I got a phone call from the DA looking to know if I wanted to take a plea bargain. When even looking back on it now, it's like, that seems pretty aggressive for a fender bender. <laughs> but based on what the officer told me and based on, on some, some experience I've had with car accidents, I don't know why I have to be able to tell you I've had two of them or more. Um, but when I was in high school, I was in a really bad car accident and, and both drivers, a head-on collision, both drivers, we were given tickets and when we went to our court, the, the police officer didn't show up and so the judge just dismissed, uh, dismissed the case. At least that's how I remember it. So I'm thinking that's what's going to happen here. The police officer told me, you know, big deal, you know, you can get it dropped and so I, you know, told the lady, no, I'm, I'm not looking to take a plea bargain. And um, there were some... Uh, warnings, legal threats, I don't know what you'd call them, but that happened, and then, you know, thanks for your time, and goodbye. Didn't think much about it, figured out when I was, you know, assumed that when I got to court, and the officer wouldn't show up, and the the judge would have no recourse except dismiss the case, um, my assumption uh, was wrong. The, uh, the prosecutor had the officer and the other driver there both to testify against me. And as I'm sitting there and I'm just in shock about what's happening and the judge asks me if I have counsel, I just, nope, I'm going it alone today, ma'am. But I knew I wasn't alone and I, I said a quick prayer, Lord Jesus, help me. I have no idea what I'm doing. And I figured I'm going to get, I'm, I, you know, we're going to get into this and there's going to be, you know, objections flying left and right. And I'm going to get uh, stuck on some technicality of some legal verbiage that I have no idea. It's probably one of the most nervous and underqualified experiences of my life. But I also grew up with two brothers that I'm really good at arguing. <laughs> Anywho, so 
we're going about it and I'm, I'm listening to, you know, the, 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 the prosecutor uh, ask the officer about all his credentials and, you know, verifying that he's, he's qualified to speak on this, these matters. And, and, you know, I had to sit under, under the, the questions as two on the stand and the other driver, you know, as, as uh, listened to their, uh, the questions there and the answers. And, and I was given, uh, you know, the opportunity to, for cross-examination and, oh man, but as I'm, I'm, I'm doing that, when it got to the point where the judge stopped me of, of while I'm, I'm asking the other driver questions, the judge stopped me from, from my questions and turned to the other driver and, and, and asked, you were stopped in the middle of the road? I figured at that point, things are probably going in my direction. And, and it was right. I, I ended up being not guilty, and uh, it, we went on, and I posted on, on Facebook that day, Psalm 9, 3 through 4. My enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before you, for you have upheld my right and my cause, sitting enthroned as the righteous judge. I felt loved and protected by God that day. And, and that certainly plays into how, how God goes about accomplishing his will. But you know, I too, I need to let the theology of Mark here influence my understanding of what God was doing with this situation in my life. There are some things that were in the periphery surrounding this event that have contributed to a long process of getting me more in line with God's purposes than simply feeling loved and cared for. Purposes that surround building and edifying the church. Purposes around living in and for the kingdom of God. And it is in these purposes that we see Jesus giving us success over the enemy. Now this, this doesn't mean that Christ is without compassion, nor does it mean that God does not offer us kindness and mercy simply for the sake of our own peace of mind, because he does. I would think that the command for the spirit to leave the boy was for the crowd, but the command to never return was out of compassion for the father and the son. So furthermore, let's, let's look back at our story and see how this plays out in the end with verse 26. After crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. Not only did Jesus remove the spirit that had been affecting this boy's development from childhood, Jesus restored him completely into the community in which he lived, for it was as if he was dead, but through Christ he is made alive. This is the same for us, that, that every time I am willing to break out of my false needs of self-sufficiency and I dare to ask someone for help, a new community emerges, a fellowship of the weak, strong in the trust that together we can be a people of hope in a broken world. This is the lesson the disciples needed to learn as well. For even though they were given the authority to cast out unclean spirits, they were not to do so in their own strength and power. Look at verse 28. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. 
In the end of the matter, the working of the enemy is thwarted by the power and purpose of Christ, whereby Jesus displays triumph over evil, and he teaches the proper pathway to victory is dependence upon God. For our last point, write this sentence. Our faith must be in Christ. Therefore, because everything we have seen here regarding Christ's power over the darkness present in this world, our faith must be in him and in him alone. Our faith must be in Christ. I'm going to invite the the worship team to go ahead and, and come back up, if you would, and lead us in our final song this morning. And uh, I'm going to end on this note as you do. You see what I did there, Chris, with final song and final note? That was clever, wasn't it? That was clever. Also just killing time. (laughs) But we will face opposition of the enemy. Opposition personally. Opposition communally. Even, even opposition ministerially. And at times we'll be like the Father where we'll be despondent and, and, and desperate. And other times we'll be like the disciples where we're struggling to do what we're called to do, but all the time. Christ is the pathway to victory. Our response is to live by faith. Despite the circumstances, Despite the conventional wisdom, despite how bleak and bad things look, we must live by faith and faith in Christ alone. Harvest Decatur, let's sing. Stand and sing with me.